Hello, my name is Donna Newman, and I'm a partner in the Finance Litigation Group at Stevenson Harwood. Welcome to the third in our Autumn 2020 series of four short podcasts, in which we take a bite-sized look at some key topics that have emerged from court or regulatory decisions over the last year. In this episode, Laura Andrews, an associate in our Finance Litigation Group, covers the issues that arise when deciding whether to enforce contractual rights following a counterparty's default, and, if you do enforce, the legal and practical matters that should be considered. Hello, my name is Laura Andrews and I'm a Commercial Litigation Associate at Stevenson Harvard. In this podcast, I'll be discussing legal and practical issues for consideration in the event that a counterparty defaults under a finance contract. As the economic ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic continue to unfold, parties are increasingly likely to face difficult decisions. This podcast is intended to give high-level guidance to those evaluating their contractual relationships and deciding whether to enforce their contractual rights. I'll begin by looking at the circumstances in which you can enforce before turning to the question of whether you should in fact enforce. Lastly, I'll address how you can ensure that notices are effective if you do decide to enforce, with particular consideration to practical matters resulting from the pandemic. So firstly, can you enforce? The starting point is the nature of the breach which has been committed by the counterparty and the mechanisms available under the contract in question. This will, of course, always depend on the precise wording of the contract, its interpretation and its application to the particular facts. From an evidential perspective, the most straightforward situation is likely to be where the counterparty has failed to make a payment under the contract, because this can be established with certainty. By contrast, it's far more complex to establish whether, for example, a material adverse change has occurred. Whether COVID-19 constitutes a material adverse change will depend on the wording of the specific clause, but there is case law to suggest that a general reference to external economic changes may not be sufficient to justify using a material adverse change clause. Clauses of this nature carry a high evidential burden for the non-defaulting party, and unlike non-payment provisions, there is no black and white test for establishing what is material. If wrongfully invoked, this carries reputational risk as well as the risk that an aggrieved counterparty may litigate for wrongful termination. Even if you are satisfied that you have sufficient evidence to invoke a clause, you should consider whether your right to do so is restricted as a matter of law, for example by emergency laws put in place to address COVID-19. In the UK, the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020 introduces certain restrictions on rights to terminate, but these do not apply to specified financial contracts. You should also check any applicable local laws where the counterparty is established or has assets. Secondly, should you enforce? Once you have established the contractual mechanisms which exist, you can then consider whether to utilise them. If there is more than one mechanism available, you'll need to consider the legal and commercial advantages of each option. And in some situations, it may not be appropriate to enforce your strict contractual rights at all. This will depend on a number of factors, including the amount of information in your possession about the default that has occurred, particularly where you propose to rely on a default under another contract in the context of a cross-default provision, the strength of your argument and any potential defences which may be raised by the counterparty, could they rely on force majeure provisions, for example, the risk that you may later be found to have wrongfully invoked a clause and be potentially liable for breach of contract, 
the commercial objective you're seeking to achieve? Do you want to preserve or end the contractual relationship? Any applicable regulatory rules or guidance? For example, Prudential Regulation Authority wrote a letter at the start of the pandemic saying that covenant breaches arising from COVID-19 matters should be treated differently to other breaches and that PRA-regulated firms should consider waiving such breaches. And the existence of any viable alternatives. For example, whether you have recourse to a guarantee or you're able to reach an agreement with the defaulting party. If an agreement can be reached, this should ideally be documented in writing. Where no oral modification clause exists in a finance contract, this may preclude a later verbal variation. When documenting a variation, thought should be given to whether a deed is required and any variation requirements in the existing contractual documentation. If you decide to postpone enforcement, you should bear in mind the risk that you may later be said to have waived your right to enforce for present or future breaches or be prevented from doing so under the doctrine of estoppel. As an example, it was held in the case of Tele2 International Card Company SA and Post Office Limited that a significant period of delay meant that the right to terminate was lost, despite the existence of a no-waiver clause. To minimise this risk, the non-defaulting party should expressly reserve their rights in inter-parties communications and document any agreement reached with the counterparty as to non-reliance on any forbearance. Lastly, if you do enforce, it is of paramount importance that you do it correctly. This is best summarised by the observation of Lord Hoffman in the Manai Investment case, that if a clause requires the notice to be given on blue paper, it is not validly exercised by giving it on pink paper. In other words, you must strictly adhere to contractual notice provisions, whether it be a default notice or a termination notice. If they are not followed to the letter, there is a risk that failure to comply with the contract will invalidate the notice. This may in turn prevent the non-defaulting party from bringing a claim under the contract in respect of the matter which is the subject of the notice. Whilst notice requirements will of course vary from contract to contract, I'll now consider some points of general application in relation to issuing notices. First, the form of the notice. If a notice must include certain words or information, you should use those words and provide that information. Subject to any contractually specified requirements, you should consider making the notice as comprehensive as possible, for example, by including all instances of default in the notice. Second, the timing of the notice. If a notice needs to be served by a particular time, you should ensure that it is served before that deadline and you may want to leave a buffer so that this can be done. However, contracts may not always specify a hard deadline. In a recent decision, in the case of Towergate Financial Group Limited and others, and Hopkinson and others, the High Court construed the requirement in a share purchase agreement for notice to be served as soon as possible in respect of any matter or thing that may give rise to a claim for an indemnity. The judge took a pragmatic approach and determined that there was an enforceable condition precedent simply requiring notice to be given as soon as possible. On the facts, the relevant notice was late and therefore the claim for an indemnity against the defendants failed. Third, service of the notice. If a notice must be sent by a particular method and to a particular address, you should ensure that it is sent by that method to that address. This is something which has been complicated by office closures and remote working arrangements resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. Whilst post and faxes may be delivered, you should consider whether this will be sufficient to make the counterparty actually aware of the notice you are serving. Are there any other known addresses or contact details to which a notice can be sent? 
in addition to those specified in the contract, so as to maximise the prospects of the notice being received and read? Is it possible to agree alternative arrangements for service with the counterparty? This should comply with any variation clause in the contract to ensure that it is contractually binding. And just a word of caution on alternative arrangements. It was held by the High Court in Greenclothes Limited and National Westminster Bank that notices could not be sent by email under the 1992 or 2002 ISDA Master Agreements because the phrase electronic messaging system was not intended to include email. This was distinguished in another judgment of the High Court in Lehman Brothers International Europe and ExxonMobil Financial Services BV, where it was determined that notices could be sent by email under the Global Master Repurchase Agreement because Annex 1 of the agreement included email addresses as contact details. However you serve a notice, it's important to keep a documentary record of the steps you've taken so that you are fully equipped should the counterparty later seek to challenge the validity of service. Another important issue to consider when a counterparty defaults is whether legal professional privilege attaches to communications concerning the default. These may not be protected from disclosure in any subsequent proceedings involving the counterparty if litigation is not in reasonable contemplation at the time, which is unlikely to be the case when serving a notice. And copying in-house counsel or external lawyers will not change this. For communication to benefit from legal advice privilege, the dominant purpose must be to obtain legal advice. To conclude, there are three key stages when it comes to enforcing contractual provisions. Can you enforce? Should you enforce? And getting it right if you do enforce. Careful consideration should be given to each stage before taking any action.